seated. Our sermon text this morning is uh, from Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 32. You can find, uh, you can find this text in your bulletin or uh, in the Pew Bible in front of you on pages 826 uh, and 827. Hear the word of God. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David! They were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority? Are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man... We are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. The grass withers and the flower fades. 
forever. Amen. Let's pray. From one end of this passage to the other, Lord Jesus, you are revealing yourself not only in Jerusalem, but to us here in the land this morning. And how we pray that you would grant us spiritual eyes to see you for who you really are and to jettison all the false misconceptions we have of you, all the wrong ideas, all the shallow understandings of what kind of king you are and what your purpose is and what matters to you, all those things that we've accumulated, that we've held on to, uh, sometimes against uh, what we know really to be what your word teaches. There's just so much that needs to be overturned in our own hearts and in our own minds this morning. And would you graciously do that just as you did in the temple? And would you also graciously declare your heart's purposes to each of us this morning. We pray particularly for those who are not yet uh, Christians, who are not yet uh, joined to you, and by repentance and faith that on this day you would so move in the power of the Holy Spirit that they would be literally raised from the dead and brought into your kingdom. And we pray in your name. Amen. Hey, don't you wish you had a pastor who could figure out how to plan well enough so that we we did the triumphal entry of Jesus the week before Easter as opposed to the week after Easter? Wow. Well, maybe, I don't know, maybe Mick Jagger's right. You don't always get what you want. But if you try some time, you might get what you need. Um, We turn a very important corner. Uh, when we get to Matthew 21 in the flow of Matthew's gospel, because up to now, uh, consistently, uh, whenever Jesus has uh, been teaching his disciples or showing people who he actually is, he's always accompanied that with the instruction to not tell anyone else. He doesn't want it to be spread. He doesn't want the news. Up to this point, he doesn't want the news to be spread that he's the Christ, that he's the Messiah. And the reason for that, we've seen it again and again, is because he knows that that label has already been filled in incorrectly with content by the population at large. There's a, there's a prevailing understanding of what the Messiah is and what he'll be like, what he'll be like, and what he'll do that is widely held among the Israelites, and it's not accurate. So Jesus wants the news that he, up to now, he wants the news that he's the Christ, the anointed son of David. He wants that to be held back so that he will personally be able to fill up that identity with the content that God actually intends for it to be filled up. So now, as he is poised to enter Jerusalem uh, in the last week of his life before the crucifixion, now all the restraints are off because he is poised to enter Jerusalem and he is going to fill up the content of what it means, what God intends for it to mean that he is the Christ, that he is the anointed one that he is the son of David. He's going to do that through his suffering, not in the way that people expected. He's going to do that uh, through his, his being mocked and being disregarded and being judicially condemned and being executed on a cross. That's going to be the content of the anointed one. And that's just very unsettling. It's absolutely staggering. You see, for, it's not enough to know that Jesus is a king, or the king, we need to know what kind of king he is. And even that isn't adequate because we all need not just to know those things, but we need to respond. Every single one of us in this room, whether you're Christian or non-Christian, what the call of God is from this text to every one of us is to respond, to give our best thinking and yield our deepest feeling in adoration of this king. He's a king unlike any other. And that's what he shows us in this passage. He's utterly unlike any other king. Even we 
are so prone to errors. We who are handling the Word of God, we who many of us have just been in the church for such a long time, decades for many of us, even we need to acknowledge again the truth that nobody, nobody can ever really be prepared for the kind of king that Jesus is. We can't prepare ourselves for what he shows us in this passage. It's staggering. And there are three things he shows us about his kingship in the passage this morning that I want to think with you about. And they rhyme, okay? I want to apologize for that in advance. I couldn't make them not rhyme. But I don't mean in making them rhyme to trivialize them. We're going to see Jesus' royal might, his strength, his royal rights, what are his kingly rights, and finally, what his royal delight is. So let's think first about the royal might of Jesus Christ. And what I mean by that is, that's really the first thing that greets us in this passage, uh, friends, this morning, is the power of Jesus, the strength of Jesus, his might. And it's a very strange might. It's a very strange kind of strength because it unites things that we normally separate. And it's very surprising when you slow down and pay attention to the text because what, what Jesus' strength is shown to be here is this, this stunning combination of absolute sovereignty and control over the most minute details and humility. Now, in our minds, those things do not go together. But you know what? That is actually the grain of the universe we inhabit. Look at how sovereign Jesus is. You know, at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus gives instructions, what looks like instructions to two of his disciples, but those aren't instructions so much as they are promises. You see, Jesus tells his disciples to go to these two disciples, and we're not sure which two of the twelve he's talking to, but he, he delegates, he deputizes these two disciples. He says, go into the village in front of you, and you're going to find a donkey tied up, and you're going to find a colt with her. Untie them, bring them back to me, and by the way, if anyone asks you any questions, say this. See, he's not... He's not just saying, go find me a donkey and go find me a colt. He says, go find the donkey and the colt and have the conversation that I've already marked out for you to have. Now that's staggering. Because what he's telling them is that absolutely every detail related to the entrance into Jerusalem is under his control. You see, it's not enough for him to just arrange those things. He deliberately reads his disciples in on that, doesn't he? He tells them ahead of time. He shows them ahead of time. He gives them, he invites these two disciples to go do this, knowing full well that what they discover is going to be exactly as he promised. He doesn't just delegate them on an errand to go wherever they can find a donkey and get a cold. He says, go find the ones that I prepared. Now that is so important to see, friends, because it is very much a an announcement, Jesus making the announcement again. It's an interpretive guide for everything that's going to happen during Holy Week. Because what Jesus is showing the disciples, what he's showing us, is that every single aspect of everything that happens in Jerusalem during Holy Week is something that Jesus intends That the meaning of the events of Holy Week, according to Jesus, is that he means every single one of them. Not a thing that happens in in Jerusalem during Holy Week is an accident. There's nothing unexpected. There's nothing that he doesn't anticipate. A hundred percent of what happens in Jerusalem, yes, his suffering. Yes, the mockery that he endures. Yes, his death 
being forsaken even by the Father, being alone in Gethsemane, deserted by his disciples and even abandoned at a certain level by his Father. All of that, everything that the rest of the gospel is going to narrate, all of that is fully seen by Jesus and embraced. And that means, friends, that what Jesus is declaring not only to the disciples but to each of us is that his cross is his choice. Now, doesn't that encourage you? Oh, that encourages me. Jesus is not just some some tragic figure in history who suffers unjustly. He's not a victim. So his death is not simply some kind of inspiring example. Don't, don't think about the cross that way. It is not an inspiring example. Don't look at the cross and say, what an example of love. Jesus doesn't intend to be our example. He intends to be our Savior. And in order to be our Savior, he cannot simply be an example, a model, because you and I would never live up to it. No, his death is his sovereign will. And that means that all the promises that come out of the cross are guaranteed. They're not accidental overflows. They're not incidental, unanticipated benefits. They are the divinely conceived and divinely achieved effects of his intention to give himself on the cross. It's awesome. His cross is his choice. And that goes with something that we would never put together with it, and that is tremendous humility. Um, this is the second strand. He's, he's, <laughs> this, this is what's so amazing. You're never going to meet anybody like Jesus Christ. He's strong enough to be in complete control of the most minute details, and yet he's also, at the very same time, strong enough to be meek. Oh, you need to think about that. Strong enough to be meek. Strong enough to be humble. See, it's the way he comes in. In uh, verses 4 and 5, Matthew explains to us, Matthew loves to to emphasize for us how uh, the things that Jesus has done and who he is fulfills uh, what has been predicted throughout the Old Testament. Because Matthew just loves to show us how from the very beginning of the Bible, the Holy Spirit has just been bent, just absolutely focused on laying the groundwork, the glorious groundwork, weaving in the DNA of Jesus Christ. And he now points us out, uh, points out to us how in the prophet Zechariah, near the very end of the Old Testament, there's a prophecy, right? A prophecy of the Messiah's arrival into Jerusalem and it's a very strange portrait because no, look, at, look at verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, that's probably Jerusalem. Jerusalem is probably the daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you. Now, okay, your conquering king, your Messiah is coming to you. We expect to see him in a chariot. We expect to see him at least on a war horse. We expect to see him with weapons, with all the benefits of his conquest. And guess what? He's humble. And he's mounted on a donkey, not a war horse, not a chariot, on a colt. It's, the, it's a beast of burden. This king who is triumphant, who's coming to his people in triumph and bringing peace, and he's doing it in humility. So he's a victor, and yet he's humble. It's very shocking. And what Jesus is doing here, I mean, I don't think the crowds understand it. I think that's Matthew's perspective. The crowds don't really understand. I mean, they're right. They're saying the right words. Son of David. They're saying the right words, but the content of what it means for him to be the anointed one, he is making sure that he is demonstrating the kind of king that he is by coming in this blend of sovereignty and triumph and absolute humility. Because, friends, a king on a donkey is just a warm-up for a king on a cross. 
A king on a donkey is, a, is, is basically a contradiction in human terms. A king who is strong in, by being meek, that's a contradiction in human terms. But here's the point, friends. It is not a contradiction in divine terms. And so the same is absolutely true of the cross. A king on a cross is a contradiction in human terms. But you have to decide whether the Bible's right or whether your gut instincts are right. What is the grain of the universe? This is what it means to believe. To believe the gospel of Jesus Christ means that you jettison the logic that your life in this world has taught you, which is that a king on a cross is a contradiction in terms and your mind is renewed and you are transformed by God's declaration and demonstration that a king on a cross is the revelation of God as he actually is. It's staggering. Because it means that all these understandings of who God is that we carry around in our lives are totally wrong. It means that God is so much holier than any of us have ever even begun to imagine. That his law is so much more exacting than any of us have ever even begun to imagine. And that he is so much more loving and gracious than any of us has ever even barely begun to let our hearts believe for a nanosecond. This combination in Jesus Christ of a power that is totally sovereign and totally humble that we see on display in his entrance into Jerusalem is the DNA, not just for the rest of Holy Week, but for the gospel itself, right? And it's a very threatening combination, if we're honest. Because we are people who are neither sovereign nor humble. I mean, think about it, friends. The mightiest one, whether it's the king on the donkey or what happens near the end of the week, the king on the cross... The mightiest one, the mightiest one is the meekest one. The, the highest one descends. Now, friends, that's ultimate reality. That's ultimate reality. That's the actual grain of the universe. That's the way the universe runs. That's the nature of this universe that we inhabit. The mightiest one is the meekest one. Friends, if that's true about him, then what does that say? What kind of life are we supposed to live as his people for those of us who are Christians and for those of us who are non-Christians? What kind of call is such a mighty one then authorized, entitled, empowered to issue to your life? You see, that radically changes how we think about God because none of us can say to a God like that, Come fit yourself into my life. He didn't come to fit into our categories. That's the whole point. The power that Jesus Christ wields is completely independent of the world. Completely independent of the world. He does not need the world's categories. He does not need to fit into the world's boxes. He does not need to hit the target of the world. He does not need to fulfill to any degree the expectations of the world. His power is a power totally independent of the world. And therefore, because it is totally independent of the world, it is completely unrestricted in its authority over the world. Because he does not need to meet any standards in the world. So there is no way that this Jesus, who is sovereign and humble, there's no way that we should ever be thinking 
that he came into the world or that he came into Jerusalem or that he'll come into our lives to comfortably and snugly fit himself into our categories. Friends, we need to repent of the way we think like that. He didn't come to fit. He didn't come to fit into our categories. They're not good enough for him. You know Psalm 24? I was thinking about Psalm 24 this week. Remember when, when in Psalm 24 it says, Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. Why? You know, this, he has his, David has this vision of the temple, the sanctuary just kind of being broken open. Right? It, it's something dramatic is going to happen. And what is it that's going to completely overturn all the expectations and, and not be able to fit into the way things actually were before? It's that the king of glory may come in. Right? That's what's happening here. The king of glory is coming in on a donkey, and he's headed toward a cross. And that means that none of us, none of us can prepare ourselves adequately for that, and he hasn't come he hasn't come to just fit himself snugly into our lives and to leave the rest of our lives not radically changed. The entrance into Jerusalem is full of the DNA for the way Jesus enters the world and he enters our lives. It's a might unlike any other. Now let's think about his kingly rights. And here I want to think with you about two the royal rights of Jesus Christ, two in particular are emphasized in our passage. His right to our worship and his right as our judge. His right to our worship and his right as our judge. Um, this week I, I decided I would start re-listening to uh, John Piper's sermons on Romans that he started in 1998. And I remember there was, no, there was essentially no internet then. It was my first year of seminary. And I remember, there was an internet, but I didn't know what it was, okay? Doesn't that just sound crazy to be able to say that? And so uh, I found out that, that Piper was preaching on Romans back in seminary, and so I subscribed to his sermon tapes, and they would come every couple of months. There'd be like this big envelope full of cassette tapes. You remember cassette tapes? Do you remember those? It was like this little player, and you put these tapes. You, you guys remember that? And these things would come in this big package, and I would just like, oh, give me that! And I would just gorge myself on these Piper tapes. And God used those uh, sermons, especially in Romans 1, to just grip my heart in such a beautiful way at the beginning of seminary. And so I started re-listening to those sermons uh, this week. And uh, I had forgotten that he shared a story in one of them. His dad, and it made me think of, of this uh, passage and this point, um, his dad, Piper's dad, was an evangelist, an itinerant evangelist. Uh, for like 50 or 60 years, had an uh, a evangelistic ministry. And he, Piper was uh, talking about uh, sin in this sermon. And he said that his dad told him, Johnny, the hardest thing is, it's not hard to get people saved. He's speaking as an evangelist. He says, it's not hard to get them saved. The hardest thing of all is to get them lost. And what his point was is that people will be much more open to the truth of God's grace. They'll be open to that. Tell me I'm loved. Tell me there's forgiveness. But what people won't do and what is much harder work is to help them see their actual crisis before God, what it means to be a sinner and how much they need the cross. And until you see that, the cross will be small. And the love of God will be small and manageable. It'll fit in your pocket. It'll fit on your Sundays. And I think Piper's dad's point is very apropos in this chapter. Let's think first about Jesus' right to our worship. It's staggering to think what he does in verses 14 through 17. I mean, picture the scene with me in verses 14 through 17. Right? I mean, Jesus has just healed an, uh, an unspecified number of the blind and the lame in the temple. He's in the temple precincts, okay? He's in the large temple court. And he's being followed around 
by a troop of children, uh, probably boys, who are crying out uh, after him, Hosanna to the son of David. I mean, it's loud. And these kids are just following him around. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. And there are, are priests and there are scribes who are watching him heal the blind and the lame in the temple and seeing these kids following him around, shouting, using this messianic language that they probably heard uh, as he was entering Jerusalem. They probably don't really understand what the language means. And these uh, religious leaders, these spiritual leaders, these spiritual leaders of Israel, they react to Jesus' healing and the acclaim that he receives with indignation. And they say, are you listening to these kids? Tell them to shut up. They shouldn't talk that way about you. And Jesus doesn't even get close to diffusing the crisis. He radically intensifies it. Because look at what he says. He says, oh yeah, I heard them. Have you never read your Bible? Have you never read Psalm 8? Verse 2, now look with me at what he quotes in verse 16. He's quoting Psalm 8, verse 2. You know, Psalm 8, which begins, O Lord, our Lord, this is David speaking to the Lord and about the Lord. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. That's how Psalm 8 begins. And in verse 2, David says, to and about the Lord, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you, meaning the Lord, have prepared praise, and the implication is for yourself. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying that these kids are fulfilling God's purpose for them as kids, which is to praise Yahweh. That's step one. But it's step two and implication number two that's the most staggering. And Jesus is saying, and in praising me, they are praising Yahweh. They are fulfilling the reason they were made, which was to praise the living God when they praise me. Now, friends, this is not a Hindu who's saying this. This is a monotheistic Jew saying this. And he's saying that Psalm 8 is fulfilled when I receive praise. That the praise God has prepared for himself out of the mouths of babies and out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, I am the rightful recipient and owner of that praise. And he's saying it while he's standing in the temple court. That's amazing. He's entitled... To everyone's worship, he's saying. And he makes no apology for it. He's saying, I am the rightful claimant over the worship of these children. And by implication, you as well, you, you indignant <laughs> spiritual leaders. Every, he's entitled to everyone's worship. And guess what? Everyone is obligated to worship him. Did you notice that the children, Jesus, the children who are praising Jesus are neither infants nor nursing babies? Did you notice that? I mean, they're walking around following him, so they're not infants, and they're, they're using words. So they're not infants, and they're not nursing babies. So why is Jesus uh, using Psalm 8, verse 2, to legitimize what they're saying? How does it apply to them? I think the point is very clear, that what Psalm 8, verse 2 means is that God has prepared praise for himself, that the harvest he intends to receive from his image bearers from the earliest season of their lives for himself is praise and worship. And if it's true of children who are still nursing, if it's true of infants and babies, then how much more true is it for the rest of us who know more, who see more, who have received more? You see, what Jesus is declaring here, friends, is a vast right to worship. And so I want to ask you this question. I want to ask you to evaluate yourself. 
whom do you more closely resemble here, the chief priests and the scribes or the children who are following Jesus around the temple? And I, I'm, I'm not distinguishing when I ask that question between Christians and non-Christians. Are you, more like the, are you more like the chief priests and the scribes? In other words, silent and not giving Jesus the worship that he claims he's entitled to and that you're obligated to give him? Or are you like the children, this irrepressible, can't really shut you up because you're, every time you look at Jesus and you see him do something amazing, you've you, you got to say something. Friends, what this, what this episode shows us is that silence is disobedience. Silence is disobedience. Silence is not God-honoring. Silence does not give Jesus the worship that he's entitled to, that he's claiming that he's the rightful owner of. What these kids do in the temple, it's kind of embarrassing. It's kind of lavish. It's kind of extravagant. When have you ever gone out on a limb to declare the greatness and the goodness of God? Friends, if Jesus' praise has to be pried out of us, pried out of us, his rights are being denied. That's what he's saying. So, his right to worship. Secondly, his rights as our judge. Jesus enters the world, excuse me, he enters Jerusalem the same way. He enters the world, not as a visitor, but as its owner. And so there are three episodes back to back where Jesus uh, does some remarkable things in terms of exercising authority as a judge, his rights as a judge, exercising and asserting them. First, look look at what he does in the temple in verses 12 through 13. I mean, he comes right into Jerusalem. This is amazing. He comes right into Jerusalem. He enters the temple, verse 12, and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. All who sold and bought. Notice he doesn't, he's not just going after the money changers. He's not just going after the people who are selling the sacrificial animals. He is saying even to the buyers, no. So it's not just about, this, this episode often gets read too narrowly. That what he's doing is he's really against exploitation. No, he's against the misuse of his father's temple. And he's an equal opportunity critic. And what he does here his, it has two parts. He does his actions and then his explanation. And both are remarkable because in his actions, he walks into the temple like he owns the place. Now you might say, that his zeal, maybe you're, maybe you're inclined to say, well, he's just a very zealous reformer. Just one of these passionate guys who actually believes the Bible. But you know, and, and if all you had was his actions, then maybe you could walk away with that interpretation. But then he adds words. And in verse 13, he explains his actions. And he does it by combining two Old Testament texts, a verse from Isaiah 56 and a verse from Jeremiah 7. And look at what he says. He said to them, now this is in explanation of his actions, he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. That's Isaiah 56. But you make it a den of robbers. Now both those verses in their original context, are are Yahweh, the Lord, speaking about his temple, about, from Isaiah 56, its proper use, and God speaking as the owner of the temple about the legitimate uses for the temple. My house shall be called a house of prayer. And in Jeremiah 7, 11, God speaking as the owner of the temple, criticizing the misuse of the temple. But in both instances, he's speaking as the owner. And notice that what Jesus is doing is he is taking Yahweh's words as his own words. He's standing in the middle of the temple in the place of Yahweh, using the words of Yahweh. And what he is declaring unambiguously is that this temple belongs to him because he is Yahweh. And so he has the right 
the authority, not of a mere zealous reformer, but as the rightful owner to declare what is legitimate worship, what is the legitimate use of the temple. He has the right to declare right and wrong. And that's a right that only God himself has. Now, friends, do you understand that the purpose and the meaning of your life, of my life, of all of our lives, is that our lives are intended by God to be a temple, a sanctuary, a place where he will be worshipped, where he'll be sanctified, where he'll be honored, where he'll be exalted. Do you know that that's the point of your life? Do you know that that's why God causes your heart to beat every day and gives you oxygen and makes uh, your body capable of digesting the food that he's given you? It's because he has set you apart to be in in the totality of your life to be a sanctuary where you and he meet and where he is honored and worshipped. Do you understand that? Because that's the purpose of your life. Do you understand that Jesus Christ has the absolute right to enter in, and I'm saying this to Christians as well as to non-Christians, there is no distinction on this point. Do you understand that Jesus Christ has the absolute right to enter into the center of your life without your permission? He does not need it. To enter into the center of your life and to declare that there are certain things that are not in conformity with his will or desire for your life. And does he have the authority? Do you understand that he has the authority to overturn tables? to overturn patterns in your life because he does have that authority. He has the authority and the zeal of the rightful owner of your life. And that's true whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. Now, can you see, my non-Christian friends, how significant this is? Because you might... You might have thought, as, as I was reading the passage, that this, this, this whole context is so religious, and, and you don't lead a religious life. You don't really go to church, so this is, this is mostly about Jesus coming in and saying to religious hypocrites, hey, overturn uh, your habits. Don't be a religious hypocrite. But you identify yourself not, as somebody who's not a religious hypocrite, but you know that's wrong. You are a religious hypocrite. You are. You don't even live up to your own standards. You don't live up to the things that you criticize other people for when you're honest about it. You're not as good in your own life, and you know this at 3 o'clock in the morning, you're not as good in your own life as the standards by which you measure other people and criticize them. Your whole life is religious. It can't help but be your human being. You may, not, uh, you may not worship in church, but trust me, there are things you bow down to. There are things you look to rescue you. You are very religious. Oh, please, please leave the illusion that the Jesus Christ you thought you knew is a small Jesus. He's entitled to the center of your life. He is not interested in getting your pocket change. And he is not interested in tolerating your defiance of God. He wants to bring it to an end by his mercy by his mercy, because he wants you for himself. He wants you to be wrapped up in his forgiveness and in his pardon. He wants you to know and to experience from the inside the wonder that that you can be reconciled to the God you you were made to find all the fulfillment of your life in. 
Friends, Jesus is the rightful owner of your life, just as he was of the temple. Now think about the fig tree. The next episode, Jesus, I mean, again, remarkable. Look at verses 18 through 22. I mean, it just keeps getting ratcheted up. 18 through 22, Jesus is approaching Jerusalem the next day. And from a distance, he sees a fig tree, and it's got leaves on it. Now, if it's got leaves on it, there should be fruit. He gets up to the tree, he inspects it, and he finds no fruit. In other words, the leaves were lies. This is a fig tree with no figs. This is a tree that is not being faithful to its treehood. Because what's the whole point of a fig tree? This is not rocket science. I didn't grow up on a farm, but I know this one. What's the point of a fig tree, friends? Figs. And Jesus comes up, and he's hungry. And he doesn't find any figs. And so what does he do? Does he just walk away and say, well, I'll I'll look for a tree that has figs? No, he curses the tree. He curses the tree. And the tree withers at once. Now, can you think of a single thing in the rest of the Gospels that Jesus does that's like this? I mean, this is really harsh. Maybe the closest thing to it is when he overturns the tables of the money changers, but this is much more dramatic. He curses this tree. Why? Because it had the appearance of life, but it was a lie. It didn't have the substance of life. Much more fundamentally than that, it did not give him what he desired. Matthew makes a point of telling us that Jesus was hungry. This is not a disinterested inspection of the tree. He ends up cursing the tree because the tree did not give him what he desired and what he wanted from the tree. That's not petulance, friends. That's the, that's the action of an owner. That's the action of a cultivator. That's the action of the one who is sovereign over that tree. And when you put this together with symbolism that runs throughout the entire you know, s- scope of the prophets in the Old Testament about how, how figs and fig trees are often used as an image for the people of God, what Jesus is doing in this symbolism is he is asserting his right to judge the covenant people of God. Now, friend, do you understand that Jesus has the right to scrutinize your life? Do you, do, do you understand that? Because he does. He has the right to scrutinize your life, to come up and inspect your life. He doesn't need to ask your permission. He has the right to judge your life. And yes, he even has the right to curse you. He even has the right to curse you if you do not yield to him all that he desires from your life. All that is rightfully his, all of you, all of me. Because if you don't believe that Jesus has those rights, you're wrong. He does have those rights. Yes, even the right to curse a life. You know, in the book of Revelation in chapter 6, there's a phrase um, that is used, and it's very shocking. It is the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. And the reason it's so shocking is because up until now, every time we've heard about the the Lamb, the Lamb is the one who bears the wrath. But there's a day coming when that same Lamb is going to bring wrath, when the age of mercy will end. And friends, unless you know Jesus Christ is the one who has the sovereign right to judge every life, I mean, whether you choose it for yourself or not, you will appear before the judgment seat of God, before the judgment seat of Christ one day. And Jesus will be exercising over your life exactly the same rights that he's exercising here in Jerusalem, over the temple, and over the fig tree. Because the Father has given, John says, the Father has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor him as they honor the Father. Jesus is just living out here uh, the charge from the Father. He has the right to judge our lives. 
He has the right to scrutinize them. He has the right to expect that there be fruit from our lives that meets with his desires. That's a big Jesus. And then finally, the third episode of judgment. Look at the leaders and the tax collectors and the prostitutes in verses 23 through 32, how Jesus deals with them. This, is, this may, in many ways, this may be the most shocking because he, he issues such a, a, an unexpected moral verdict. He tells, uh, the, the leaders come up to him and say, hey, you're walking around like you own the temple and you're walking around like you have the power to, to uh, curse the people of God. Where do you get the right to do that? Now, of course, Jesus knows that they're not really interested. They just want to pick a fight. And so he asks them the question about John. They refuse to answer it. Uh, they, they try to maneuver around Jesus, which is what we all try to do. I mean, do you not recognize yourself? trying to fend Jesus off with these phony arguments. Boy, I was a master of those. And I was the, the phonier the better before I came to Christ. Don't do that. You, the people who engage in phony arguments with Jesus, you never win. You're doing that to your own harm. And so Jesus says, I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things. And then he tells this parable about the two sons. It's interesting. We're not sure initially why he tells the parable. The father, his father has two sons. And he goes to the first son and says, hey, I'm your father. Got the vineyard. It's time for you to start working. And the son says, I ain't going. But then afterward, he changes his mind, right? He repents and he goes. And the second son says, oh, yes, sir, I will go. You know, the outward form of obedience, right? Yes, sir, I will go. You know, this, this elevated, polite title. But he doesn't go. Now, what does the father really want? Does he want words that are dishonest? Does he want the outward form? Or does he want somebody who is going to repent and turn to do his will? You see, what Jesus does here, friends, is he looks the religious and spiritual leaders of Israel in the eye and he says to them something that is just totally shocking. He says, you are the moral inferiors of the tax collectors and prostitutes. Now, here's my question for you. Is Jesus committing a moral outrage when he says that? I mean, does that not get you? I mean, come on. These people have invested their lives in studying the Bible, in working in the church, in trying to live lives, at least on the outward, that look like God's law matters. I mean, they are, they're not pagans, right? I mean, they're going to the temple. They're, they're, they're moral people. And Jesus says, I am standing now as the judge and I'm telling you that I can see past the facade of your outward religiosity and your morality and I'm going to tell you that the prostitutes and the tax collectors are getting into the kingdom of heaven, but you're not. Do you see what he's doing? He is completely upending all the world's categories. You see, he's saying God is not a moralist. The moral outrage here is not that Jesus would declare the tax collectors and prostitutes who repent, the moral superiors to the, um, to the spiritual leaders of Israel, that's not the moral outrage. The moral outrage is that any human being would think that through the external form of their religiosity or through whatever they can achieve by their morality, that God would somehow be constrained to grant them on the basis of their own religiosity and their own morality entrance into his eternal kingdom. That's the moral outrage that Jesus is overturning here. God isn't going to be used like that. His holiness isn't that shallow. And the holiness of people is not that high. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are on the way of righteousness. But the religious people aren't. 
what kind of judge is this? What kind of judge is this? Do you see how disruptive this is? Do you see how much upheaval this brings into the world? Do you see how, how this forces us, this confronts us with the reality of our self-righteousness in a way that is so unsettling? Friends, Jesus Christ has the right to enter our lives and to examine all of our morality and all of our religiosity and all of our piety and all of our moral exertions, he has the right to step in, examine all of that, and declare it wanting, not good enough to gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Do you believe in this Jesus? Because that's what he's doing here. Friends, let him shock you out of beginning to trust in your biblical orthodoxy or in your own moral efforts or in the depth of what you think of as your repentance. In other words, let Jesus' grace and his moral realignment of the universe, let this free you uh, from thinking of God in such mechanistic, robotic categories, in slandering his holiness at the same time that you flatter your holiness. Let him free you from that. And friends, if, you're a, if you identify more with the tax collectors and the prostitutes in this story, if you, if you think of yourselves as somebody who, of yourself, as somebody, if you know your own broken moral history and you feel trapped by it, do you believe, do you believe, my friend, that Jesus Christ has not only the right but the desire to step into the midst of your broken moral history and to declare it utterly powerless to keep you from the kingdom of God if you will repent and turn to him? Do you believe that? He has that right, my friends. He has that right by the power of his history to completely nullify the effects of yours. That's why he comes into Jerusalem. That's why he came into the world. And that's why we are to worship and adore him. This is the kind of judge that he is. Now, friends, in closing, I want to I think with you about what gives him delight as a king. Because if you're shocked by how Jesus exercises and asserts his authority as judge <coughs> here, the degree to which he does it, uh, there's something even more shocking, and that's what's going to happen in the rest of Holy Week, and that's how Jesus actually brings about his judgment. It's even, it's even more destabilizing and shocking than what we've seen so far. What do I mean by Jesus' royal delight? Well, what I mean by that is the pleasure that Jesus takes in bringing his sovereignty and his humility to bear, his rights as judge, his right to our worship, the way that he brings all those together in a way that is totally unlike any other, any other king. There never has been a king like him. There never will be another king like him. The way he brings about the use of his power to vindicate his rights is unlike anyone else. Remember what we said about the power of Jesus at the beginning of the sermon, that because his power is totally independent of the world, because the kind of strength that he has is totally independent of the world and totally independent of us, that means that it is therefore completely unrestricted in its authority over us. So there is nothing that he is not entitled to do, including assert his royal right to claim all of us. We've seen that under the last heading. But here's what I want to end with this morning. Jesus' royal rights don't end there. There's another royal right that he possesses. And it's not merely to claim all of us for himself. But what he does in the rest of Holy Week is exercise his royal right to give all of himself for us. He is the judge, my friends, who brings, who fulfills his judgment. He's the judge of all the earth who brings judgment 
and fulfills the judgment by bearing it himself on the cross. What kind of judge is that who enters Jerusalem to bring judgment, who brings the day of judgment, and the way he fulfills that judgment is by bringing it down on himself so that he can shelter his people from his judgment and satisfy his judgment at the very same time. This is a king who wields his sovereignty in humility to save rebels. And it gives him joy. He delights in being this king. And he delights in making available still today the wealth of his cross for anyone. The way of righteousness is not the righteousness of men, who earn through their morality the key to the kingdom of heaven. The way of righteousness is the Holy One himself who gives himself, who descends, the mightiest one, who makes himself the meekest one. This is the grain of the universe. The mightiest one who makes himself the meekest one. The holy judge of all who gives himself in the place of his people to be judged on their behalf and thus fulfill his holy judgment in that way. You know, as I was working on this passage, I kept thinking about that very famous story in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And I thought about it again this morning. I had a totally different ending for the sermon that I'd written yesterday, and then I thought about this passage this morning. And this is what I want to end with. Uh, I, I hope I'm making the right decision. You know, in Numbers chapter 4 this morning, I was reading the instructions about how the when the tabernacle was moved, the instructions that God gave uh, for the wrapping up of the things inside the tabernacle, so the Ark of the Covenant and the, the golden lampstand and the table for the showbread. And, and it's really easy to read that stuff and just go, oh my goodness, I can't believe I've got to read this. What relevance does it have to me? But I kept noticing this morning how meticulous God was in instructing uh, Aaron and his sons that, that they have to go into the Holy of Holies and they have to cover the Ark of the Covenant. They've got to cover it with cloth. And it, no part of it can be visible. None at all. And I thought, um, and, and, the, and then there's a, one, of the, one of the tribes, uh, excuse me, one of the clans in the Levites, the Kohathites, uh, don't, don't, don't worry about that. But the Kohathites are then charged with actually transporting the stuff that's inside the, inside the tabernacle when Israel's on the move. And, of course, the Ark of the Covenant is where God's throne is. That's where God's holy presence is in the Holy of Holies. And there's a line in Numbers 4 that says the Kohathites can't even look. They can't even look on these things without being killed. So fast forward to 2 Samuel 6. The ark that had been captured uh, by the Philistines is now being brought back uh, into, um, into Jerusalem by David. And uh, it's not being transported in accordance with God's law. And it's on a, some kind of ox cart. And there's a guy named Uzzah. And something happens and the ark... The, the cart hits a bump or something and the ark starts to fall and Uzzah reaches out and touches the ark and God immediately strikes him dead. And David is just completely overwhelmed by this whole thing. And he names the place where that happened Perez Uzzah, which means... the breaking out against Uzzah. And the name is the Lord, I mean, it essentially means the Lord broke out against Uzzah there. That, that God took the ark so seriously that the slightest, the slightest disobedience and presumption of a sinful creature to touch the ark where his, that was the symbol of his holy presence with his people, to touch that is a capital crime. The Lord broke out against this man. The Lord broke out against it. And then I thought about Matthew 21. What is Jesus? He is the holy presence of God. Everything that the ark symbolized, Jesus is 
as a man. He's the Word made flesh. He is the Shekinah glory of God as a man. And he is now entering Jerusalem. He is the fulfillment of everything the temple symbolized, of the ark, everything. This is God walking in the midst of his people. And he comes into Jerusalem. This is the kind of judge he is. This is the kind of king he is. He comes into Jerusalem, and guess what? Guess what happens all week to him? Sinners put their hands on him. And he doesn't strike them dead. He's the Holy One. He lets them put their hands on him and then take hammers and nail spikes into him and push down crowns on his head, thorns, and slap him. All week long, all week long, hands on Jesus. And God doesn't break out. Because God has another plan. And the plan is that the reason Jesus went into Jerusalem, the reason this king went into Jerusalem, is so that he could be there on the cross for his people when the dam holding back God's wrath that had been built and kept by the mercy and forbearance of God when, so that Jesus could be on the cross when that dam by the plan and foreknowledge of God was broken open. And God, in all of his holy wrath, would break out upon his own beloved son. So that you and I and everyone who trusts in Christ will have a shelter for all eternity. Friends, that's the kind of king he is. That kind of king doesn't come into your life to just fit into a small pocket. That king comes in to rule. He comes in as your champion. He comes in as the one who is worthy of your deepest unbroken loyalty. He is the one who comes in rightfully as the owner of all that you are for every breath that you ever draw and with the right to overturn every single part of your life. There is no other Jesus. That's the king who has come. Let's pray. Forgive our irreverence, our toying with you, our fiddling with you, our belittling of you, our casualness about you, our boredom with you, Ravish us for your glory. We pray in your name.